Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're excited to have you. Today we're going to talk a little bit about what you do, some of the impact of your work, and the responsibility we have as designers and facilitators. So would love to jump in and maybe you could tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure thing. Gavin, first of all, thanks very much for having me and um, giving me the opportunity to, you know, to shoot the breeze and, you know, babble on about things I like to geek out about. So I, I appreciate that about me. I'm a designer. I have a, I have a master's in industrial design. Uh, but I, I kind of, when I got out of design school, you may have noticed the, des the des industrial design was getting very, very vanishingly thin. And uh, very quickly, the firm I was working for was like, oh my God, we got to design the interfaces of all these things yeah. um, that we're barely designing now. And so I helped spearhead the, the absorption or the development of interaction design at that, that small firm and like walked into this much bigger world of design as a part of that. And since then, I think I had this very early realization that the best way to design is designing with people instead of for them. Like, and that's with the, the customer or the user in mind, obviously, like human-centered design. But I think then over time, very quickly going up to that next level and being like, oh, wait a minute, there's all these other humans. And so designing with these other humans, like your clients, and all their stakeholders. And so that realization of whatever I make, I may love it and my, the customer may, may love it, but if the, if the client doesn't understand it and hasn't been a part of it, then it doesn't really go anywhere. So I, I've been a sort of like, uh, you know, they talk about full stack engineers. I feel like I've been like a, a full stack co-creation designer for, for a while. And so that's, that's been about like facilitation which I didn't know that that's what it was called, but the way you, you know, host those conversations and get people together is a facilitative skill. And so that's, that's what I've spent the last bunch of years, not just coaching people through design thinking experiences to make better stuff together, but like helping them get those facilitation skills themselves so that they can improve potentially without me there, which is nice because it's like, you know, increasing the impact. Absolutely. That, yeah. Yeah. You want to keep that conversation going even when you're not there. And that's one of the, the roadblocks we're seeing a little bit in design thinking is we, we kind of do this and then internally there's not enough uh, traction for it. Um, would love to, yes. You know, your philosophy a little bit, or maybe just your point of view on, on what, you know, you're doing and, and you know, how you facilitate. Well, you know, it's so funny. I was literally just commenting, um, this guy, Mariano's last name, I blanking out on, he's the founder of Mural, um, yeah. which is, you know, Mural, well, really well, it's, I guess it's, it's called Mural now. It used to be more specific. I think it's just, they call it Mural now. I could be wrong, cool. but uh, I don't think the, I don't know if they have the, the Libyan, uh, .ly anymore. <laughs> it might just be mural.com. They may have finally gotten that. Um, he was, uh, he and I are, are, I don't know, you call them friends on LinkedIn. Are you friends on LinkedIn? You're connected. connected. I, yes. Yeah, I talked to this guy years ago. He's, I've, you know, I've had Jim on my podcast and Mario and I talked years ago about um, when I was at Design Gym about doing stuff together. And uh, he was posting something about how uh, design thinking which they're big proponents of because you want to like, you know, enable virtual collaboration, which is what design thinking is all about. You really need a good platform to do that. And he was like, you know, if you teach people about design thinking and then they don't actually get a chance to do it, it breeds cynicism. Sure. And I was like, 
it it breeds more than cynicism. It 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 uh, it generally creates more problems than it solves, in my own personal experience, because the organization, unless you change the organizational permission structures, you get people who are like, "Oh my God, we're doing design thinking. We want to test this with some customers." Yeah. And the org's like, mm, no, you're not. That that's dangerous. And they're like, oh, we have a prototype that we'd like to like beta test. And they're like, no, that's not a thing either. And so the wall between the the team and the and the the outside world is is pretty um, solid. Yeah. And so I find that I was like, yeah, it makes more problems. And Mariano was like, well, actually, doesn't it just um, expose? the stresses in the culture and in the organizational structure. Yep. And I was like, that is a really, it's true. And that, I think that's for me and my conversation design journey, the thing I was just writing about this this morning, the, the reason I think conversation design resonated for me was I was never being hired to design that other conversation. Right. Like almost never. And yeah. that's because org design is weird, expensive, risky, requires very, very high levels of trust. Mm-hmm. It's very, very easy to say, oh, uh, here's a couple of tens of thousands of dollars. Why don't you train this team to be more innovative and effective? Because yeah. that seems like what they want. Right. And you're like, cool, I will totally design the fuck out of that for yeah. you. Yeah. And they are going to be so fired up and turned on about design thinking they won't even know it hit them. Like, and for years I was like, that's my jam. I get people fired up about this. And then I was like, wait a minute, it's not making the change I want it to have. Right. Why not? And it's like, oh, because of all this other stuff I'm not allowed to do. Oh man, you're bringing up so much. I, um, I don't want to go too off track, but you know, to me, I call that the, the lab mentality. Um, you know, yeah. class at Pratt for five, five years. And, um, you know, we think about companies like, um, you know, Apple or Amazon, where innovation, you know, becomes a core tenant uh, of the company. But other companies that have tried to have that innovation usually do it in a sort of a concealed place called a lab. And the, the idea is, well, all the cool stuff that we're doing is happening there. Yes. Um, but the problem with that is it's not, um, it doesn't help the rest of the organization. You know, yes, they're they're doing cool stuff. Um, Xerox, for example, had a lab where they created the mouse and they created tons of technology yeah. we used. Park, of course. And but it didn't hit the rest of the company. And you see that time and again where the lab mentality or this innovation lab mentality of companies um, becomes, you know, it, it becomes sort of a you know a self-reflecting pool, um, and it doesn't help the rest of the company. It's actually worse than that, Gavin. Um, it, what I found recently is that it breeds tremendous resentment. Mm-hmm. Um, the, or the rest of the organization is like, oh, we don't innovate? Yeah. Like, we're not, oh, these, these guys in our innovators, and what are the rest of us monkeys doing? Yeah. Um, plus, when, when organizations that I work with come into an organization to you know, install design thinking on the organization at scale, the innovation lab, people are like, that's what we get to do. Right. right. Yeah. But they're too small yeah. to actually have, you know, this has happened. I, I don't want to name names, but there are certain global consulting firms that have hired certain smaller innovation firms in the effort of like, oh, so you guys will help, will be, we'll teach the rest of us how to innovate. Right. Teaching people how to innovate is different than actually innovating. Totally. 
<laughs> and so it's like this giant messy dialogue where the innovation lab is resented by the organization. Yeah. Uh, the organization is supposed to be taught innovation by the innovation people or they want to, but they can't because that's not what they know how to do and they can't scale it large enough. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's just, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Issues too, and, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of mess. Yeah. Too, for, from our perspective is, is certainly easy, but you, you think of the large companies that are trying to do this across their org, and there's, there's just a lack of permission to make mistakes and, and mess up. There's a, lack yeah. of, there's a lack of time, too. You know, here's, here's the innovation, but we're not going to give you the, the, the 20% that Google does or whatever it is that you need to make time to, to learn and, yeah. and get the training that these labs might give. But well, so if I can, like put a sidebar on this because I think that was, that was a, well, no, no. I mean, this is, this is part of this conversation. I I think um, one of the things I realized very early on was um, when you go in and you teach a company how to innovate, it suddenly becomes like, Oh, so there's my regular job and then there's innovation and they're separate from each other and they've got a full-time job. Most people who have joined the Borg uh, and have full-time jobs at these large companies are currently working at a hundred percent. There's literally no slack in the system. And then you say, okay, so now I want you to use design thinking or innovation, lean, whatever, agile, and it's this separate thing. Yeah, Yeah, so now work 110%. There's nothing else is being taken off of the table. And so that stinks. And it's the the mirror of that conversation is I recently hired a coach for myself because I was like, well, I'm a coach for other people. Cool. It's kind of stupid for me to not have my own coach. Yeah. And, you know, I thought that, as many people do, that by paying top dollar for somebody really good and, you know, making time, we were doing like two-hour sessions every other week for three months. Like, that's a big time commitment. Absolutely. Um, I was like, that's going to help move the needle. And I guess what? Halfway through the coaching, I was like, I'm not getting enough out of this. And that's because I was running two the coaching session and then running from the coaching session. I was not giving myself like the liminal space, the buffer to like, not just like do my homework, but like do my homework, like process it and believe in it. Like, and it's the same thing with innovation. You're like, okay, I'm showing up for the innovation session. Okay. Back to the rest of the shit I got to do. And you need to like have recovery time. It's like, you know, you're going to go to therapy and then go to an all hands meeting with your, with your whole office. Like, no, you want to go to therapy. You want to go get a coffee, chill the fuck out. Yeah. And then like, go back to work. Right. You know, listen, think, respond, give yourself the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is the thing I've realized is that conversations at the small and the large scale are the same. Well, I'm glad we took um, a little bit of time to chat about that. I'd love to bring it back to the term conversation design. Yeah. Really, really just get a keen definition from you. What is conversation for you? Dan? Dude, well, I'm going to take a step back from that too, as I would. Like, I think before service design was called service design, were people designing services? Yeah. Right, yeah. And before product design was called product design, people were designing products. And, and, and I think uh, these words, these terms like service design and interaction design help organization design help us pinpoint and have like a conversation about these specific types of design to 
to bring people together who believe in certain things and to focus on a certain material. And I think, um, I mean, obviously as an industrial designer, when I first interacted with interaction designers, I was like, you're not, pro they call themselves product designers. And I took umbrage at it. I'm like, you're not designing products. I'm designing products. Like they're physical products. Like what you're designing aren't products at all. Right. But a product is anything somebody plunks down money for mm -hmm. um, that has some sort of dimensionality. It just turns out that interactions are happen in the dimension of space and time, mostly time. And, you know, uh, so I think services to me, I look at service design and I'm like services are mediated by products, mm -hmm. right? And uh, service designers don't talk to industrial designers as much as they should, but they, they look at a system and they see the, the journey, they see the service and they think about the blueprint and that's their framework, that's their modality. Um, and for me, conversation design is the willingness to see conversation as a material, mm -hmm. right? Like in the same way that product designers look at products, you know, like the, the physical dimensionality and curve and line and point as a material and service designers look at services as a material to be shaped. I've started to say, what conversations are you already shaping? Because like, I think most of us are trying to design conversations already, either professionally or personally. And we're either doing a great job at it or we're not. And I, and I believe our success at designing those conversations pretty much determines our overall success in life. And to me, I think to, to the extent that people absorb frameworks yeah. around designing a conversation, they become successful. And just like what you said about, um, what was the three-part framework we had? Like, uh, to me, it's like measure, test, reflect. You talked about. You can do Test, learn, respond. Test, learn, respond, right. So to me, that is actually a framework for a conversation that helps you make sure you're looking at three really important components of life. Um, you can do it without the words, but the words help you. The words frame are a framework, a narrative thread that helps you see what you couldn't see before. In the same way that design thinking is a design for a conversation around, about what to make and why, for who, and how. Um, and the, the phases of design are literally just words that help you frame what's happening and why and give a name to something that you believe is happening. And so to me, um, the ability to create these frameworks for people to step in and be part of them is designing the conversation in the same way that like sitting down with someone to negotiate a contract you don't go into that without a design for that conversation. Right. I, I, you know, I, uh, last summer, maybe even two summers ago, last summer I, I took a, a one week intensive at the Harvard negotiation Institute because I had someone on my podcast who said it was like one of the best, best workshops he had literally ever, ever put down money for because it gave him a framework for transforming every conversation for the better mm -hmm. thinking about, who the stakeholders were, uh, what their interests and criteria were, what his goals were, what their goals were, and strategies for uh, getting to better outcomes. Mm -hmm. That to me, like, that is designing a conversation for the better. And so I mean, it's a very broad 
expansive definition. It's almost on the everything is a conversation and nothing isn't a conversation. It's sort of like the hammer or nail, like a chef looks at the world as food kind of analogy. Um, so it's dangerously expansive. I, I acknowledge that. And I'll now cede the floor to the interviewer. <laughs> That's my like tirade about conversation design. Loving it. A conversation uh, that we're having. I mean, it's a desire to relate to each other and understand each other. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of that as necessary for communities, necessary for humanity to survive. And so yes. on a personal level, okay, there's an impact of conversation design. And then professionally, you have to think about, you know, the, um, the different types of people you're bringing in with different types of skill sets. Yeah, yeah. Different expectations about how to use those skill sets, both, you know, revealed and, and not revealed in their contract or whatever they're signed up to do. And so, you know, bringing that all together, you end up with a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and you need a good manager or a good leader, right? Well, and, and those people are good at designing that team conversation. I... I'm not, I've never managed a big team. I don't know if I would know how to do it well. I don't right? even know if you can manage a big team. We're, you know, we're, uh, <laughs> well, that's another, that's a separate conversation. Or even, you know, we can look at it more on, you know, a systematic uh, understanding of, of governance, right? We, we, we have a certain level of organization that we set up as, as humans to manage people at scale, whether it's yeah. church or state, they're all created to manage people at scale. And so totally problem happens internally with the business and and i think sometimes managers are just trying to survive um you know 90 percent of what they do during the day is just putting out fires which is fine i mean that's yes. that is your job and um making it easy for people to do their job you hire talented people to come in with incredible skill sets and you just want to get out of their way um and sometimes get other people out of their way too and i think that is what design thinking can do it can bring different skill sets together and still optimize their thinking. Yeah, and the way it does that is by creating a very tight cadence and a very clear narrative thread yeah. to hold it together. And that's why the, the design sprint is so popular right now is because it's like in a week, a small group of people will land the plane and get feedback. They will close the loop on the conversation. They're not just gonna map the problem and talk about it. They're gonna test a solution. And the reason they do that is because they say they're going to. Yeah. They've negotiated that. They've yeah. negotiated an agreement that come hell or high water. And guess what? Regardless, Wednesday, people are freaking the F out. And on Thursday, they're like, no, 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 no. I don't wanna put this in front of the customer. Yeah. But the contract is, we will know more on Friday afternoon than we do on Thursday afternoon, regardless of how scared you might feel. Yeah. And the sprint is a good design for a product design conversation because it clears out all the dross. It's not the only design. It's very popular now because it seems all purpose and that it will solve all of this messiness. They can't, but it definitely can help. It's one of, you know, it's in the same way that people are like, uh, I don't know, I've looked in some, to some product management courses like Prince 2. You can be, you can be a, a certified product manager, <clears throat> which means you have the frameworks and people will say, okay, please manage us. You know how. 
sprinkle your management dust upon us. Yeah, we need it. We, need it. <laughs> we desperately need our the management dust. Yeah, and probably a little bit longer than two weeks. Um, yeah. I wanna I wanna move a little bit into facilitation. I know we had a couple other questions for the the beginning. Yeah. Uh, just thinking about time, I want to chat about facilitation and thinking about how, you know, as a facilitator, you go into a room with all these different skill sets. Yes. What helps you help others in that scenario? That's a really good question. And I'll tell you, I, um, the, the exploration in conversation design has actually helped me to clarify the so the, a lot of the conversation theory is about one-on-one conversations because it's easier to study. Obviously, as you get to larger groups, like you said, it becomes utter chaos. Yeah. And so the very, very first thing I do is to actually take that big group and break it down into very, very small groups. And the smallest unit is one person. Mm-hmm. So like the very, very first principle I, I hammer on is think alone before you think together. And... I'm not the only, I mean, this is, this is like a very, very easy thing to remember. It is very hard in practice to do because when I'm, I, me as an external facilitator, I, I disrupt power structures because I've been paid. Um, there's a special time that people have carved out. For the internal facilitator, it's much, much scarier and much, much harder to get everyone together and say, okay, everyone, take three minutes and write down one thing you think's working about the product, uh, one thing you think that's broken about the product, and something that you're, you know, you think, you know, is an open opportunity that we could explore, mm-hmm. like a very simple positive, negative, and potential analysis. What uh, Luma calls rose, thorn, and bud yeah. analysis of the current state. Most people would rather just say, "Okay, everybody, what's going on?" let's have a free for all conversation. Um, and they think that their job as a facilitator is to wrangle the personalities and to push back against the over talkers and to pull the under talkers forward and to like hug everybody and to cajole them. But pu- manipulative. it is manipulative because yeah. you're manipulating them. Yeah, that's not facilitation the, the way I, I know it. Well, but you know, there are large room facilitators that, when you need to have the large conversation, sometimes you do need to have everyone talk and respond and to manage that. But I find that thinking alone and then thinking together is much, much more effective. And that's because I think over time with the conversation mapping that I've been doing, I've begun to realize that you have to uh, respect the the, the individual conversation and and, uh, get people to express what they really think. And the yeah. only way you do that is by giving them time to do it. Yes. You have to give them room. And, and uh, you mentioned the internal, external. Externally, you can step away without, you know, having the responsibility, which we'll talk about more. Internally, you're stuck. You know, you're <laughs> yes. glue and gum on your shoe. There's no way to get away. Yep. And you're also, there's a higher responsibility because most likely you've been given a, you know, a goal, a destination. Yeah. I ask you about... Um, you know, your mindset, um, you know, as a facilitator. But something you told me back in April when we met was you really don't think of yourself as a creative, if, if I'm getting this right. Um, what does that mean to you? Well, I, I, honestly, I don't remember what I said, but I think, <laughs> I think for me, like, I, I, I'm, I, I think everyone, 
everyone designs, yeah. right? Everybody designs who tries to make things better on purpose. Uh, you know, the Herb Simon definition of creating uh, preferred situations over unpreferred situations. I just say most of us are not allowed to make things worse on purpose <laughs> and stay hired. You can make things worse by accident sometimes. If you make things better by accident, you're lucky. Yeah. But you don't get rehired for that job. If you make things better on purpose and it can explain what you did, you designed things well. Yeah. Um, and so I think the things that I, I, I realized very early on that I was better at designing the conversation that I was at, you know, my, my graduate thesis, I partnered with a really good friend who was not just a better form maker. He was a better form maker. Um, he just, he thought about the product in a very, very different way than I did. I loved the user research and the synthesis and the convening. And I think of that as, I'm not going to say that's not creative. I'm creative about those things, but they're not like the same as, it's, it's, much, it's much more below the iceberg level, maybe. No, and so I, I design, I sketch workshops like, you know, all the live long day and worksheets and frameworks. And I'm just, you know, not a great graphic designer. So what are some of the healthy exercises you do? Or what are some of the go-to exercises you do to stay in sort of a healthy place and uh, as a facilitator and stay, keep your game up? Oh, dude. I mean, so the first is, you know, whatever that you just need to know what makes you feel good. Right. So this is, this is non-trivial yeah. because most of us are desense, you know, numbed because of modern life. And so uh, one of the things I found is like, I used to meditate very religiously. Now I meditate when I want to meditate. I don't use it as something I have to do. I do it as something I want to do. Um, I do morning pages. Uh, not every day. I don't abuse myself with it when I, it's the notebook is there and uh, morning pages, which is, um, um, uh, like a, a, a writing meditation that Julia Cameron spearheaded in her book, uh, The Artist's Way. Three pages, stream of consciousness, just get the dross out. It's really effective. I did my morning pages this morning because there's a lot in my head and I need to pull it all out. Um, the third thing I do is, um, you know, having developed my own clarity about my conversation design operating system, and the canvas that I've, I've developed over time, the thing I put at the center is this idea of invitation. Mm -hmm. And invitation is important to me because anybody who has to play can't play. And uh, one of the things I teach when I teach facilitation is this idea of open space conversations, which I didn't invent. It's, it's a thing. You can Google it. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of open space conversations is that literally – all of us have two feet and we can use them whenever we want to. Mm -hmm. Anybody who is forced to be here can't participate fully. And so one of the things I say at the beginning of every workshop I do is uh, I want to know why people are there. And I also want to remind them that they can go if they want to. And it's like the old Monty Python skit where um, John Cleese is, has everyone marching up and down the square. It's in the meaning of life. And he's like, does anybody else have any place they'd rather be than marching up and down the square? And he pauses and somebody actually raises their hand and he's like, well, actually I, you know, I'm learning the piano. 
And John Cleese is a drill sergeant is like, and I suppose you'd like to go practice. <laughs> well, off with you then. And he, he leaves. Yeah. And suddenly like, everyone's like, wait, there's an out. I don't have to drill with the drill sergeant. Yeah. It's like, no, you don't. You, you can choose to be here. You can choose to be someplace else. Absolutely. And so to me, I think as a facilitator, my, my belief is that I am primarily there to help people contend with themselves. Mm. And it is not my job to fix them. It is their job to, to their whole people and like whole intact, loved by God if he exists or um, loved by the strong and weak nuclear forces that continue to provide them with structural integrity. I, they, don't, they, didn't, they didn't earn that. So they're just there and they're people. And so if they want to be here and they want to play this game called let's make something better together, awesome. If they're like, I'm not down with this. I'm not down with them. And so I think the idea of invitation means that I, I am, it's my job to invite you into this space and make it seem like fun. And it's your job to locate yourself in this space and participate should you be into that. And I think a lot of facilitators feel like it is their job to like squeeze, push, force, direct, funnel, cue, force and the idea is like you got to make it a pull instead of a push and it's, it seems like a, a trivial thing but it's i think that little shift is really really crucial it's crucial it, it feels you said it's at the center of your your modal and and to me yeah. the you know having it as a centerpiece it, it reminds me of so many things at an operational level as well you know you're talking about it as a as a facilitator's, um, you know, tool, but but really it, it's operational because managers that force everyone to do a certain task or a job feel feel the the strain just as much as you would if you were trying to force people to be at your workshop. Yep. But inviting them in and helping them realize that they don't actually have to be there if they don't want to. Um, that's that that makes someone decide. They have to make a decision. Yes. Um, and that's I think the big piece that that is part of your invitation is someone has to respond to that invitation. yeah and you learn a lot by whether or not somebody responds yeah. you don't know like and everyone has that fear of like uh at the beginning of a party will some will people come yeah luckily i have one friend who's always on time to barbecues like nobody else shows up on time to a barbecue you say it's three o'clock and people might show up at 4 30 right but rob shows up at three and i'm like at least rob is here <laughs> There will there will be grilling. Right. I don't have to eat alone and drink yeah. it by myself. Yeah. So you've already answered a little bit of the, you know, how do we help others design? Um, you know, and in that vein, I talk a lot about shared vocabulary and establishing uh, a way for different skill sets, different expectations to come together and communicate and understand each other. Um, would love to hear your thoughts about how you establish shared vocabulary and, and whether that matters to you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, I think, one of the reasons why design thinking is such a powerful framework is that um, it's got very um, broad narrative power. And I've said for years, like, what you call the phases of design thinking matter. You know, everyone, a lot of people love to just take the d-school version and just bring it right in but companies like Accenture have you know worked very assiduously to make those those phases 
to define them for themselves mm-hmm. and to def- and to and it's a process by which they need to there's a push and a pull mm-hmm. where uh i think it needs to be co-created just like um you know a great product is co-created in some sense between all of the people on the team and also with the customers and the stakeholders uh in in uh in harvard's negotiation modality they talk about negotiating the process before you negotiate the content Mm, Um, because if you don't agree on the process when there will come a bump in the road and you need to be able to refer back to the agreements that you've made and so um, I have a good friend who when he kicks off a a multi-week class asks people the very simple question like what are in your experiences the best practices in showing up for these types of team dynamic co-working situations because they do a series of of um paired or tripled small projects people know if you ask them they'll say like oh doing the thing that was assigned to you like uh showing up for you know the meetings with my partners um not missing any class showing up on time like clearing my schedule and we think these things are known and they are, but until we say them out loud and put them up on a wall and then make a list of them and say, this is our contract. This is our um, operating system. This is our, these are our agreements. Then people can say, I'm in. Um, If you don't have that conversation, then it's very easy to have people be like, maybe I can get away with, being less than what I know I need to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you need to, even though it's like going slow to go fast, like even though it, it um, takes time, it's time well spent. It is. Uh, I want to move into the impact of our work and just talk a little bit about um, really the, the core of why I'm doing this podcast is to, to bring people together to talk about what we make and, and the effect and the impact it can have. Yes. Um, you know, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about the experiences that, that we, that we create and how they impact people. Yeah. I mean, so we talked a little bit about this before we, we kicked off that design is like a big responsibility. You, you, you must take responsibility for what you put into the world. There's actually this great phrase, um, there's this axe company called Grenzbruck Fork. Um, and my friend bought a, uh, Grenzbruck Fork axe. It's Swedish. We, he got it at a, like a, uh, we, we do this canoe trip every, uh, every like late summer, early fall. And they've got this amazing little, you know, when you rent the, can, the, 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 the canoes, they're just, the place is filled with awesome stuff to buy. Um, in case you forgot something and there's like an axe and we only had this little hand chopper and he got like a real goddamn axe it was amazing um and they talk about having what's yeah really great for chopping your friends um uh uh, they talk about total responsibility for the product and it blew my mind they were like we take total responsibility for everyone who works for us all of our suppliers Mm -hmm. and the product in perpetuity yeah like obviously not if i like you know cut my hand off that's not their fault but they take total responsibility for the product, which means that it's guaranteed to work if it's well taken care of. And if it's defective, I can bring it back. And they think about sustainable wood and sustainably sourced metal, the whole thing. 
And I think we as designers are just lazy by and large because we do it's expedient. And the, and the, the article I sent you from the hustle about algorithmically generated t-shirts is a perfect example of designing something and then uh, not thinking through all the implications of it. You know, uh, it seems like a great idea to make a million t-shirts that are as custom as possible to take advantage of Amazon's algorithms, but they didn't think about, well, what would happen if this made an, an offensive phrase? And the guy was put out of business for that. Yeah. And so I think we very often think like nobody, I think we rarely think, is it my job to make this? What would happen if no one made this? Would the world be okay? You know, um, solving you know, first world problems nonstop, yeah. you know, to just sort of eke out, a, you know, a little bit of profit or for oneself or a lot of profit if you're lucky. Um, uh, yeah. We don't have a, enough of those already. And <laughs> right. not a criticism to say you shouldn't, um, but, but there is a higher conversation. This isn't scripted either, but uh, about, you know, what, what could I make versus what should I make? What sure I have? I've been I've been given this skill set of right. design or or engineering or whatever my skill set is. I could use it for anything, and you know it, it's also admitting to yourself that making a million dollars, you know, off of a product, it, it's possible. But how do you want to make that million dollars? Sure. And let's also acknowledge that a million dollars is just not enough. That's like right. barely. <laughs> your body, your soul, and you know, your kids and your house for that million dollars. Yeah. So, so this goes back to, you know, and I'll, I'll share the grid that I've, that I've been working with. To me, the interior conversation, we don't make space for. Where it's like, where you say like, what should I design? What could I design? Versus like, do I even need to design this at all? And that goes to like, I think the most healthy thing for an individual is some silence, you know, some time away from our phones, away from technology, away from uh, any responsibilities, you know, just like sitting in a hammock for 20 minutes. Like that's what meditation is for. And I, and I, and I think business obviously is about profit. It's about results and it's about go, 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 go. I think businesses could benefit from a little bit of silent reflection that you know, like the thinking alone thing in the in the workshop thing. It's like, hey, everyone, just take a minute and say, like, what would happen if we didn't do this? Yeah. You know, what's the worst case scenario if we didn't do this at all? Like, maybe the world doesn't need this. Yeah. Like, well, I don't think we ever ask that. Um, it's sort of like, how do we do it? Yeah. And let's. It's possible, so let's make it happen. And so I, I feel like making space for the, the negative conversation of like, instead of make, the negative is like, oh, what happens if we don't make, yeah. right? And in the Zen philosophy, they, they talk about how a bowl is actually useful because of its emptiness, yeah. right? It's not, you know, it's, it's not because of its fullness. A bowl is a vessel. And I think we need to empty ourselves out, like just occasionally mm. to make space for some of these really important questions that, that, that you're bringing up about the ethics, the ethics of what we design. Yeah, I love your, you brought up the idea of a bowl and, you know, emptying yourself out takes effort. Oh yeah. There are things in you that take time to get out. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I'm not talking about demons, right? I'm just talking like, 
there are mental uh, weights that you're carrying. Um, you know, no. we make fun of it. We make it into memes where we're like, well, you know, what do you think about when it's 2 a.m. and, you know, something you stupid you did in high school? Well, yeah, but yeah. you haven't tackled that yet as an individual and either taken responsibility for it or addressed it as an adult and said, that's not me anymore. Or I've changed the way I do it, so I don't have to think about it that way. Or maybe I need to address this thing that I haven't thought of for a while. And, and that takes effort and time. And it's, it, you know, you have to make the space for it, but you also have to work at it. It's not easy. I like the idea too of, you know, breathing exercises and things like that, that just help your body to relax. Um, oh, yeah. So high strung. We are. We're just, we're, you mentioned it earlier, you know, we're, we're on to the next place before, you know, we've really even finished what we're doing. Yeah. And when we get there, we're texting our friends about the next place we're going. And we're always, and maybe, you know, it's, you could say it's, you know, oh, we're forward thinkers, we're, you know, we're innovators, but it's like, no, well, we have some things to deal with now in the present, but also things that we need to reflect on in the past. And, and any, any, you know, anything that overemphasizes one over another reduces the, the, the ability for balance to really help you. And I'd love to ask you more about uh, how we could be better. You know, we, we talked a little bit about the consequences of what we're doing, but what could we, what could we do that's better? What are we missing out on? Well, I mean, I would just say time is, time is always with us. And I was talking with a friend recently about just organizing his, your, our time better. And, and I think one of the challenges is just um, modern work culture has is it's work is a gas. Uh, it expands to fill the space available to it at standard temperature and pressure, like Boyle's law. And when I think as a freelancer, I'm a little bit more cautious and careful about my time. And so I've tried to protect my mornings for creative work and the afternoons are for, you know, meetings and uh, uh, other sorts of engagements like that. And, and I think a friend of mine who was kind of just all over the place, we had the sort of the rock pebble sand conversation where it's like, what are the rocks and how are you going to make sure that the rock conversations happen? And then all the pebbles in the sand happen. And I think we aren't, generally able to control the rocks that get into our schedule mm -hmm. and so it, it makes it challenging to have these conversations we are most people already have too many meetings and so who wouldn't talk, hear this conversation we're having and say let's have a monthly meeting to talk about ethics yeah or you know let's make it a checklist yeah. for every project I, I don't know man like let's make time every afternoon to like do nothing like not even a 20% project, but like go for a walk. Maybe then we would have some time to think without having to design it all in. Cause I think we can over design. You can over design your schedule. You can over design a product um, in negotiation. You can, you can over design a negotiation so that it seems like an agreement has happened, but really people were just sort of like squeezed into it. Yeah. And so I think, I think, you know, I think we all need some undesigned time to allow some of these things to bubble, to bubble in and to bubble up when they, and they, and I think they naturally will. Yeah. And you've already touched on it, but you know, whether it's having a meeting to talk about the impact or the ethics of what we make, but how, how can we 
if it's if it's making time for walks or whatever it is but how can we be more aware just as designers or facilitators of the impact of what we do yeah um, you know do we need to be tracking the things we make should we be should everyone have a handle on the metrics and the data coming out of what we make you know and and some of the other conversations i'll just bring it up on this podcast you know i brought up the idea of some sort of regulation board around the things we make is that where we're going mm. uh, you know just just thinking about what we could do to be more aware what, yeah what i mean obviously i think you know i'm sure you're um you're a fan of the five e's of experience design you know how somebody is enticed to enter and engage with a product, a service, or an experience, and then how do we manage their exit and then the extension of that experience. That, that, that framework of experience design, when I first saw the five E's, was like, oh my God, like every product, every service, every experience has to deal with those five E's. Mm -hmm. And I use it for designing workshops, mm -hmm. and we use it for designing services, and I think it's widening the, the 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 view frame of our products and experiences is is worth doing. Uh, <clears throat> that's what the you know the circular economy stuff is about. And there's some great toolkits for the circular economy perspective. That's saying like it's actually not a journey. It's not a linear journey. It's a circular journey. And that's a really interesting conversation to have about our products. It's like, well, are we still designing linearly or are we designing holistically and circularly? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a worthwhile conversation to have. And then it's also worth stepping back and saying, what's the long tail? And we think about extending usually in terms of like remarketing or re-engaging. And I don't think we think about the long tail of this product, which is, um, I think it was two years ago, 2015, I went to the service design. No, actually, no, no, it was 2015. 2017's um, IXD Summit. Um, it was awesome. These, a couple of people actually talked about death. And they're like, what happens to your product when your user dies? Wow. Right? What mm -hmm. happens to your, your product when the person who you've been designing for is no longer around? Who owns the data? Who owns... Yeah the experience there's tons of there's going to at some point there's probably more dead people on facebook than there are alive people you know people can still tag my dead friends and things that's kind of fucked up they can't untag themselves yeah unless there's somebody there whose job it is to like and what is the, what is the uh yeah very interesting I, so, I mean i think it's like the wide view is worth taking in those situations yeah i don't have a death plan for facebook yeah well, I, I left Facebook uh, quite a few years ago, but I, I would like to talk about, I've just got a few more questions or two more questions left around this, this idea of, we've talked about the impact of our work. We've talked about taking responsibility and at least being aware of what we yeah. make. Um, but we're going into a world now where things that we experience daily are created from algorithms. Yeah. We're constantly on our phones. We're constantly aware of things that are happening uh, elsewhere through digital means. Google just released some initiatives to address some of this tech addiction where they created, you know, one example is they created an interface, an interaction where if you put your, your phone face down, it puts it to sleep, which just, it just makes sense. Okay, we do yeah. that. We're out with friends getting brunch. 
We want to act like we're listening to each other. We put our phones face down. Sure. Phone pile. This seems to be a really great initiative, but I, I just wanted to talk about what else can we do? What other initiatives are, are needed? You know, is this just a nice thing Google's doing, or do you really think this is something that they'll continue to, to address? Well, I mean, I think it is really, really important. I had um, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Matt Mayberry on my podcast. He is head of biz dev at Boundless Mind. Mm-hmm. And they, they just wrote a really great ebook that's, that's free and available on the interwebs about behavior design mm-hmm. and some of the science behind is it the car. Um, I think it's like, um, what is it, like stimulus action response? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, getting the, I'm getting the framework wrong, but we'll get it. We'll get it better. Um, and what they do is they actually have both sides of the behavior design ecosystem covered. So they, they design, they have an API that any company can plug in to. Uh, what they've discovered is that the timing of rewards, mm-hmm. uh, there's an optimal timing to create the maximum uh, delight of of those rewards and therefore like uh well i can say addiction but we'll say like um serotonin response from it and so this is like when if you ever use duolingo uh when they like a little owl shows up he's like hey good job you like did this thing like when does the owl show up like kind of it's not random it's 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 yeah. been designed and it's designed in such a way to give you a feeling of reward um, what they do on the flip side is they actually have a plug-in to your phone mm-hmm. called um, Space. Okay. And the, the idea behind Space is that you need space from your apps, not that you can't turn them on anymore. And it's actually, it's something you can actually practice right now. Um, the mindfulness, the mindful use of your app. So you probably go onto your phone and when you do, you, there's like probably two or three apps you kind of always open. And in a certain order where it's like, I, I, you know, you're on Facebook. I am like, I'll open Facebook. I'll scroll through a little bit. And I'm like, eh, maybe I'll check the New York times, you know, cool. And if I'm feeling really, really procrastinating, like maybe I'll check Twitter or LinkedIn, like in that order, I won't start with Twitter and work my way to Facebook. It's like Facebook, the New York times. So I can be truly outraged and then like onto the next thing. Yeah. And so what space does is they actually um, make your phone shittier. They, they, they create a slight delay in opening up the app. So between the pressing of the button and the serotonin ah, rush of like, ah, all the news, there's like a, a pause, like of an indeterminate amount of time. It might be a second, it might be like three seconds, just enough to make it like infuriating um, and to break the, the cycle a little bit. And I think it's a really cool thing that they do to sort of help both sides of the ecosystem. It's like an arm, it's like an, an AI arms race uh, to to both manipulate and unmanipulate yourself at the same time. I think it's hilarious that they have uh, companies paying for it and then teaching people how to break it simultaneously. I love it. We're a little over time. Do you have a, a few more minutes? I have one more question. Sure, absolutely, man. So I'm thinking a little bit about the history of conversation, thinking about early on how proximity knit us together. Mm. Uh, you spoke to the people around you because that's who was there. Yeah. You- we worked together with them to accomplish things because that's the only way you were safe together. But now we can connect with anyone we want to, anywhere, anytime. Mm. Uh, and 
the proximity and the conversation, you know, we're, we're, we're feeling the meaning of it less. And I'm realizing now as conversation as an interface, you know, it's becoming more and more challenging to sustain it. And we are really getting to a point where it's hard for people to relate. It's difficult to find a baseline. And maybe it's because, you know, what you said earlier about putting some of the shared things up on the wall where it's like, oh, now that they're up there, I understand them. But my question really is, if we're all sort of under this thumb of an algorithm in our own world that's been created for us, how do we cross over and bridge the gap between each other through some sort of, you know, orality or conversation? Yeah. Um, we do to make that easier because I think it, it could have some some challenging consequences if we're unable just to to talk to relate to each other. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, like taking a step back, I think <clears throat> the interface a conversation happens into happens in is it's like the medium is the message. The Marshall McLuhan uh, chestnut is true, right? And the natural interface for our conversation is air. Right. And language. Mm-hmm. And like we said, if you don't have a shared language, it's literally generally impossible to have a conversation. Although I, we've had, we've all had gesture conversations with people like it is possible to do. Um, and I think a lot of our conversations are now too complicated for the air, mm-hmm. which is why we, it's like, I, I think most of us would be hard pressed to have some of the business conversations we have without a whiteboard and without sticky notes. It hampers us because there's just like a lot of complexity to work through. And so we need those interfaces of space and place to hold the conversation for us. Like, it's really hard to not, I'm sure you've been in an organizations where you don't have what's called a quote unquote war room for your project. When you have a project room, it holds the dialogue and creates persistence of memory, which helps tremendously. To, to maintain a thread of the conversation visibly. It's not one person's job to hold that. The space does that for us. And I think digitally, those, con- those interfaces like Mural and others are getting better and better. Mm-hmm. You know, one day we'll have you know, VR for that. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change our ability to actually listen to each other which is like what you're getting to, I think, which is like, are we capable of empathy? Are we willing to listen to another person? I was just responding to a friend of mine on Facebook about this, where she's a a woman of color and there's a lot of talk about white fragility and white blindness to these sorts of things. And there's a lot of defense defensiveness that comes up as a white person Uh, when when people talk about this stuff, it's like, well, I'm not one of the bad people and blah, blah, blah. And is this really that bad? And blue lives matter, all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. Whereas really what they want is the easiest thing to do, which is active listening. Mm-hmm. And when I teach this in, in facilitation workshops, I teach this in design thinking workshops, you can pretend to listen to somebody and it's super effective. You're like, wait, I think I heard you just say this. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And they go, yes. And then you go, is there anything else? And they go, yeah, you said this wrong or, well, there's this other piece. And then you go, cool. So wait, what I'm hearing you say is, if I understand you correctly now, I heard you say blah, 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 blah. Is that right? And they go, yes. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally just being a mirror to somebody and saying, I think I heard you just say something. 
leaving off, I agree, disagree, right or wrong, just actually hearing somebody and saying, I think I heard you say this. Is that correct? Yeah. And they go, yes. And they like, cool. So are you open to like my response to that? Can I invite, are you, is there a two-way invitation or is this, you just want to stomp on me? Okay, cool. That's fine. Great. Well, well, I'll just a really good question, Daniel. Like, is there room for my response? Yeah. And I ask that sometimes and you have to ask me like, Hey, listen, I'd really just like to share something that I'm really pissed off about. Like, are you willing to just hear me? So I think there's inviting people into it, you know, and relationship therapy stuff. There's a book by this guy named Harville Hendricks called Getting the Love You Want, which was helpful uh, for me in keeping my first marriage alive for a little too long, uh, <laughs> using some of these techniques. Of, <laughs> that's another conversation. But like saying to me, like, hey, I'd like you, there's a structure where it's like, I'd like you to enter into this listening space with me. I'm making a request. I'm going to share something, and all I want you to do is to hear it. Yeah. You ask for it. And that's hard to do. I mean, that's. I just had, and I, I haven't published it yet, I just had a really great interview um, oh, the book's here. Um, with uh, these two guys who wrote Discussing Design, Aaron uh, Irizarry and Adam Connor. It's about critique. And half of this book is like, just listen to people mm. and clarify what their intentions are before you tell them what's wrong with their design, Right seems pretty obvious. Like, wait, wait, wait. So if I understand you correctly, you designed this because you think the customer is this and their business goal is that. And so that's why you did that. And they're like, yes. And you're like, okay, no, no, no. All that's wrong. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad I confirmed all of that. Right, let, let me make sure you're wrong before I tell you you're wrong. Yeah. yeah. Or like, oh, I, at least I understand why you did it. Right. But your goals are right, but your methods are wrong. Your methods are right, but the goals are like a million things. But until you actually listen to somebody, uh, and just use a little bit of active listening. Uh, it's it's seriously, it is a it is a difficult skill for all the things we talked about. Time, right? Because we're 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 rushed to move on to the next thing, which is of course where we are now. But well, that's great. I, I want to <laughs> say thank you for making time today. Uh, I'm honored to have you on the on the talk, and uh, would Thanks, love man. to get you back in a, another time down the road. Thank you, Daniel, uh, for for joining me. Thank you. I love talking about this stuff, as you can tell. <laughs>